Galatians 1, 11 through 24. And it reads, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you, before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of it. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning we continue our, our study through the epistle to the Galatians. We come to the sermon entitled, Called by the God of Grace. As is our normal exercise here at East Point Church, we tend to preach through sections of scripture so that we could get the overall context of what God is saying in his word. And it's been our delight over the past couple of weeks to begin this series in Galatians. And let us pick off where we left off last Sunday, as Paul is once again reminding the Galatians that there is only one gospel, because there is only one Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, indeed, we thank you for this time this morning, for being able to sing the songs of Zion and to be able to pray the prayers of faith. Indeed, Lord, we are reminded of all that you have done for us, how you saved us and how you raised us and how you filled us with your Holy Spirit. You picked us up and turned us around and placed our feet on solid ground. Give us this morning, Lord, if we didn't shout. Remind us by your spirit. There is indeed much to shout about. You are a great God. Worthy of all our praise. This morning we pray to continue to praise you as we come to your word. Might your spirit come and teach us, Lord, and we pray, as your word says, that no weapon formed against us will prosper this morning, but that your word would be an implanted word. All the schemes of the enemy to take that word, to sift it from us, would be foiled. That that word would become an implanted word changing our hearts and our lives this day and forever. 
save those, Lord, who need to be saved this morning. May your grace be effectual. May they fall on their knees, repent of, your, of their sins, cry out for Jesus as Lord. We know this is only possible because of your spirit. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is apparent that um, East Point Church, from time to time, enjoys singing. This morning was one of those occasions because time has already gone quite a bit. That just tells me that y'all are anticipating staying in this sanctuary a little longer this morning. But that's all right. Because God has given us much to shout about. Amen. If you are anything like me, um, then you know that people are often interested and ask you to share your testimony. I find that when I travel to various places and churches and, and conferences and schools, it's amazing to me how many people want me to tell them how I got saved or how I received a call to the ministry. And contrary to most, actually, I am not very fond in retelling my salvation account. Not really fond of telling it because it tends toward the introspective. Not really fond of telling it because I'd rather tell you about the salvation of others. More exciting to me. The salvation of people like um, Martin Luther. Who on a stormy, blistering, thunderous night. Feared for his life in the midst of a lightning storm and cried out to God. To save him. Or John Newton, a rank atheist, out on the stormy sea on a ship, and in the midst of this gigantic storm, found himself crying out to the God that he claimed he did not believe in, crying out for mercy. Or even Stephen Lunga a young boy in Zimbabwe who decides that he and his little gang are going to go to an evangelistic meeting in town and they're going to set the tent on fire. But instead, he hears the message of salvation through Jesus Christ. And instead of setting the tent on fire, he is set on fire by the God. Over and over and over again, we see that God has given many of us wonderful testimony, wonderful stories of how he has changed our lives and brought us into faith in Jesus Christ. But I like what Philip Riken says. He says, every testimony is different, but every storyline is the same. While the testimony may change, the, the ultimate storyline is the same. And the storyline is simply this, called by God. 
However you summon, whatever the circumstances that surrounded your salvation, my salvation, or John Newton, or Martin Luther, or anyone else, ultimately it boils down to this wonderful, gracious reality. I was called by God. And that's where the amazement really is. I was called by Whatever your testimony is, beloved, I am convinced that it needs to be more about God than about you. It needs to be more about what God has done rather than what you used to do. I'm often discouraged when I hear testimonies because as people are sharing their testimonies, I I find that they give the impression that they gloried more in their sin than they do now in their salvation. You listen to them and it seems that they are really trying to make a point of how wonderfully sinful their life was, and it kind of obscures the wonderfulness of the Savior who has saved them. I find this a particularly acute uh, as I listen to a lot of songs, and, and particularly Christian hip-hop. hear a lot of the music, and, and, and most a lot of the music, it's, it spends long periods of time rehearsing sin and and rehearsing their degradation and and rehearsing their licentiousness and then in the end throw a little Jesus to make sure you know that it's Christian. But you're left oftentimes thinking more about the sin than you are about the Savior. You're left wondering and contemplating more the depth of their sin rather than the glories of Jesus. Whatever the testimony is, it needs to be more about God than you. However you speak of being saved, it needs to be more about the Savior than your sin. I think this is what we see this morning in our text. In our text this morning, Paul finds it necessary to defend himself against those who have come into the Galatian churches to undermine him, his word, and the gospel that he preached. And and therefore, Paul, here in our text, senses and is moved by the Spirit to share the nature of his calling in Christ. And it is in this sense, it is in one sense Paul's testimony. But notice as we read our text that our text, while it says much about Paul, it actually says more about God. As you read and and meditate on Paul's words and describing the nature of his calling, you come away with more about the God who saved him than the apostle who preaches salvation. We learn something about Paul indeed 
but we really learn more about God. There's four things that we learn about God. We learn God's gospel. We learn God's calling. We learn God's mission. We learn God's glory. All from the testimony of the Apostle Paul. We learn God's gospel. We learn God's calling. We learn God's mission. And we learn God's glory. You see God's gospel here in verse 11. As he begins where he left off in verse 10. He tells the Galatians, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. It's not man's gospel. And this really is the crux of the matter. Remember that the issue that the, in the Galatian churches was that, that they were embracing a message contrary to the one that Paul preached to them. That they were embracing what Paul called a different or another or a distorted gospel. And Paul reminded them, didn't he? And he reminded these churches that the gospel that he preached to them was not, quote unquote, his gospel. It was not his gospel. It was God's. It was not only not Paul's gospel, it was not any other man's gospel because Paul says, I didn't get it from anyone. I wasn't taught it by another person. Contrary to you and I, Paul didn't learn the gospel in Sunday school. He didn't learn it at vacation Bible school. He wasn't exposed to it because he went to Bible camp. He didn't learn it when he went to a Billy Graham crusade. He didn't understand the gospel because he watched the Paul Washer video. Because somebody gave him a track that said, God has a wonderful plan for your life. But on the contrary, Paul says, Gospel that I preach, not man's gospel. I did not receive it from man. I was not taught it by another. But on the contrary, the gospel that Paul preached is called in the Bible God's gospel. God's gospel. It's what it's called over and over again in Mark chapter 1 and verse 14. The Bible says that when Jesus came on the scene preaching, he says that he, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God's gospel. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 2, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God. God's gospel. In fact, 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 11, it is called the glorious gospel of the blessed God. It is God's gospel. It's not a man-made gospel. 
And that's really Paul's emphasis here. It is not a man-made gospel. Why? Because you know it's not a man-made gospel because man-made gospels remove the glory of God and replace it with the achievements of men and women. Those troubling the churches in Galatia, you know what they wanted to do. They wanted to make the gospel about what they did instead of allowing the gospel to be about God and what God has done. You know, today, man-made gospels want to still do the same. They want you to feel good about being you. They want to take away the offense and replace it with non-offensive good works. What they want to do, as someone has rightly said, that man-made gospels teach that a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the administration of a Christ without a cross. That's what man-made gospels are. They proclaim a God without wrath. That's how you know it's a man-made gospel. They proclaim a kingdom. Entrance into a kingdom without repentance from sin. That's how you know it's a man-made gospel. They want you to have Christ, but they don't want to proclaim the cross. They want to remove the cross because the cross is uncivil. They want to remove the blood because the blood is barbaric. They want to remove repentance because repentance is not necessary. They want to remove hell and judgment because hell and judgment are not loving. Figure that if they remove all the offense, then more people will get saved. No wonder, no wonder, beloved, that books like Your Best Life Now is the New York best New York Times bestseller. It's no wonder that books like Rob Bell's Love Wins becomes a New York Times bestseller. Because that is the message that selfish, sinful human beings want to hear. Because you do know the essence of Rob Bell's book love wins the very essence of it says that you're all right and i'm all right and god loves you and god forgives you whether you repent or not don't worry love wins well beloved that may be rob bell's gospel but that's not god's gospel that may be a man-made gospel, but that's not God's gospel. Paul reminds us, doesn't he, what God's gospel is. He reminds us that he may have preached it, but it wasn't his. God's. You know, the gospel of God is not complicated. It's not, beloved. It's full of God. It's full of his holiness. It's full of his righteousness. It's full of his justice. It's full of his truth. It's full of his love. It begins with God. 
Any proclamation of the gospel must begin with God. He's holy. He's just. He's righteous. He's angry at sin. And he's going to judge it. And he has every right in his holiness to do so. The true gospel is full of God and all of his attributes. But it is also full of Christ and all of his redeeming glory. And full of his life lived, a sinful life for his people. It is full of his death poured out unto our salvation. It is full of his blood shed for the remission of our sins. It is full of his resurrection where he raises us in him unto eternal life. It's full of Jesus and all of his person and all of his work. And how simple is that? I'll tell you how simple that is. How simply the Bible puts it. First John chapter 5. In verse 12, it is just this simple. Whoever has Jesus has life. And whoever does not have Jesus does not have life. Period. That's it. You have Jesus and Jesus only you have life. If you don't have Jesus, I don't care how fancy it sounds. I don't care how appealing it is. I don't care how charismatic the preacher. I don't care how many books are sold. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have life. This is the gospel. Paul wants to insist to the Galatians. That's it, beloved. God's gospel is about Jesus. And so you see here in this testimony, Paul says, what I preach isn't, it wasn't man's gospel. I didn't receive it from anyone. Nobody taught it to me. I got it straight, Jesus. Straight, Jesus. You see the glory of God's gospel, but you also see God's calling here, don't you? See that in verse 13. For the truth and power of God's gospel can be seen ultimately in God's calling. But not only did Paul not preach a man-made gospel, he was not, his was not a man-made call. The problem with those who were troubling the Galatians is that they were preaching a man-centered, a self-centered religion. And Paul here in this text says, in essence, don't tell me about self-centered religion. I know that. Don't try to tell me about self-centered religion. I was the poster child for it. This is interesting to understand Beloved, as Paul begins to hear, to really recount his life prior to Christ, he tells us, in essence, that he was trapped in a cycle of self-effort and being good. 
And you notice Paul's testimony. His testimony is not like most of us. His testimony was not the testimony of being caught up in the trap trap of illicit sexual relationships. His testimony is not being addicted to drugs. His testimony was not going down the road that gangster rap would take you. His testimony is not drunken orgies. Paul was a religious, a moral, and by all accounts, a good man. Do you know you can believe in God and still be lost? Paul believed in God. Did belong. He was a religious man. Notice what he says. He says that he was very religious. He was zealous. He was outstretching all others in zeal for the traditions of their fathers. He was a very religious man. In fact, beloved, in living out his life, he thought he was doing God a favor. And that's what Jesus told the apostles that would happen. Isn't that so interesting? John chapter 16, verse 2, as Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure, he says, indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. There's Paul tracking down and tracing down the church and the Christians down Alleys and corridors, knocking on doors, going house to house, seeking to do what he thought was the service of God. Considered himself a moral man, keeper of the commandment. But beloved, as Paul would tell you this morning, Actually, he was on the road to hell. Because you can believe in God and still be lost if you don't have Jesus. If you would ask Paul, he told you, you would have looked at my life and just been convinced that I was one of God's, but I was on my way to hell. And what changed? What changed? What changed is but God. But God. God called him. Notice what he says in verse 15. But when he, who is the he? God, but when he, here again, beloved, is one of those blessed conjunctions that is followed by the interjection of God's wonderful, marvelous, merciful grace. 
And you see this from time to time and don't miss it. It is the transition from darkness to light. It is the transition from death to life. It is the transition from hopelessness to eternal hope in Christ. And the only thing that makes the difference is God. In Ephesians chapter 2, in verse 4, you see it there, don't you? But God being rich in mercy. There's the transition. But God being rich in mercy. You see it in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. But God shows his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What makes the difference in your life? Where is the transition from death to life? The transition begins with God. Because unless God interjects himself into your life, you will continue to be lost. Notice what Paul says. I was going about to establish my own righteousness, except, but he, but God, but God who called me. And notice the nature of the call. It's a sovereign call, isn't it? It always is, beloved. It's a sovereign call. God called Paul before Paul could call on God. Oh, that's a wonder. <laughs> that is a wonderful truth. God called Paul before Paul could call on God. God set me apart before I was born. Paul doesn't just go back in time to the Damascus road when he met Jesus. He realizes in his mind that the deeper theological reality of it all is that God determined to interject himself into my life before time began. That's what makes the gospel about God. The sovereign call. But he set me apart before I was born. Like the prophets of old, Paul reminds us that God calls us before we ever have a mind or inclination to call on him. He calls. Jeremiah chapter 1 and, and verse 5. God said to Jeremiah, the great prophet Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Before you were born, before I set you in your mother's womb, I determined that you would be mine. The sovereign call, beloved. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4, the Bible clearly states, God chose us in Christ when? Before the foundations of the world. It's when he calls you. Next time you are inclined to share your testimony, don't skip over the fact that God had determined that you would be saved before you ever knew anything about salvation. 
Don't skip over the glorious reality and be sure to give God glory for the fact that he determined before time that you would be his. He determined that no matter how far you went in your sin, he was going to come and get you one day. So Paul is saying, he called me before I was born. Get your mind around that. It's a sovereign call. It's not just a sovereign call, beloved. Then that sovereign call, when it comes into space and time, becomes a gracious call. The sovereign call before time, when it manifests itself in space and time, becomes a gracious call. Paul says, he called me before I was born. But then he says, he called me by his grace. By his grace. Called me by his just, just meditate on that for, for a moment because those might be the sweetest words in all the Bible. He called me by grace. Just think about that. What does it mean to be called by grace? It means literally to be called by God. It means that God delighted to set his affection upon you, not because of you, but in spite of you. What it means to be called by grace. What the Bible says about the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. Of all the nations in the world at the time, why did God choose? Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 7 tells us. It wasn't because you were more in number than any other nation that the Lord set his love on you and showed you, for you were the fewest of all people. In other words, you couldn't do anything for God. God wanted an army, he could have got a better one. God wanted more industrious people, he could have got a better nation. If God wanted to do less work, he wouldn't have chose you. You were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. Beloved, this is grace. Grace is God's loving, sovereign choice. Grace is a need nothing and need no one God choosing to save you. He is a need nothing God. He is a need no one God. And he chooses to love you, to set his affection and his grace upon you, beloved. Grace is salvation. That's what it is. 
It is the essence of salvation. Now, the problem with too many of us is that we are saved and we believe that we should be saved. The problem is that we're saved and and, and in the back of our mind, we believe we should be saved. That's why we don't marvel at our salvation. That's why we don't live like we're saved. That's why we don't rejoice in the God of our salvation. That's why we don't experience the joy of our salvation because we take it for granted that we're saved. Paul never did, beloved. He knew he had no reason to be saved. He knew that the only reason he was saved was because of the grace of God. That's why he could never, he could always rejoice in the God of his salvation because no matter what else was going on around him, all it took was for a moment of contemplation and realize, oh my goodness, I'm saved. I'm saved. I'm saved. He knows he shouldn't be saved. Like Andre Crouch said, I don't know why Jesus loved me. I don't know why he cares. I don't know why he sacrificed his life. But I'm glad. (laughs) Oh, I'm so glad that he did. Beloved, That there conquers you. What could the world really do to a person who really appreciates the grace of God? What would trouble them if they really, really appreciate and understand? See that? False testimony? About the gospel, God's gospel, isn't it? It's about God's calling. His testimony is also about God's mission. God's mission. You know, in calling Paul, God also put Paul on mission. And what is the mission? He gave Paul the mission to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Gentiles. Notice what it says in verse 16. But God was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that. Here's the mission. This is the reason that he was called. In order that he might preach him. Who was him? Christ. That's what Paul did. He preached Jesus. Him we proclaim, he says in Colossians chapter 1. We preach Christ, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Tells them where he got this mission too. Where this mission come from? He go on there and ask Peter, Peter, what do you think I should do? 
I'm saved now, Peter. What do you think I should do? He go at John. John, you got any ideas? What did Jesus tell you to tell me that I should do, John? No, beloved, he got it straight, Jesus. It's amazing. And this is Paul demonstrating not only the nature of his call, but the sufficiency of his call in proclaiming the gospel to the Galatians. I got this straight from Jesus. He came to them not because the other apostles told him to. He came because God told him to. He brought the gospel to the Gentile. The word there is ethnos. It means nations. Paul was missioned and commissioned to preach the gospel to the nations. You know what those who were coming into the Galatian churches, you know what they wanted to do? They wanted to take the gospel and make the gospel more Jewish. Paul reminds them that God has always intended for the gospel to be a gospel for the nations. That's always been his plan. Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3, when he first calls Abraham, what does he tell Abraham? In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. All the nations of the earth, Abraham, will ultimately be blessed through you. In Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, speaking of that servant, that wonderful messianic servant of God, the prophecy says, I will make you as a light for the nations, for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth was never intended just for the Jews. It was always designed for the nations. And before Jesus ascended, what was the mission and the commission that he gave to his disciples? In Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19, he says to them, go therefore and do what? Make disciples of who? The nations, the ethnos, the Gentiles. Go into all the nations and make disciples. Bring my kingdom to bear upon all the other kingdoms of this world. The glory of the gospel is not that the nations become like Jews. The glory of the gospel is that all the nations would become like Jesus. That's the glory. Beloved, you are sitting here this morning because the gospel has gone to the nations. You know what? The Bible says that the nations are supposed to do. They are supposed to be glad. Let 
the nations be glad that the gospel has come to them. Rejoice, all ye nations, and be glad. I think Piper wrote a book about that, didn't he? Let the nations be glad. He got that from the Bible, in case you didn't know. Because the Bible says, let the nations be glad. If you're here this morning and you are redeemed, you should be glad. Because the gospel of grace has come to you and it was God's design from the very beginning. He didn't ask you to become a Jew. No. He designed you to become like Jesus. As Paul says, that's God's mission. It's always God's mission. Judaizers don't know what they're talking about. The goal is not to make more Jews. The goal is to make men and women like Jesus. And that's what the gospel does when it is rightly on mission. It preaches Jesus. That's, you see that there? That's God's gospel. That's God's calling. That's God's mission. Hear all in Paul's testimony. And then you get the ultimate end of all things, God's glory. See that? This is the end of the matter. It's always the end of the matter. It's all for God's glory. God's gospel, God's calling, God's mission, all for God's glory. Notice what it says there in verse 23 and 24. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith He once tried to destroy, and what did the nations do? They glorified God because of me. That is the end of Paul's testimony. When they heard my story, they glorified God. It pointed them to Jesus. They glorified God. Beloved, understand this. All salvation. All salvation is unlikely, but some people are more unlikely than others, like me. You know, I, I, all salvation is unlikely. Right there, Brian? Ain't that right, Brian? All salvation is unlikely. And if you really knew the story, you know just how unlikely it is. Well, there are some salvation that just seems to be a little more unlikely than others. And Paul was one of the most unlikely. When they heard, they they, they didn't see him. They just heard. They heard that Saul was saved. Stop the presses. No way. Isn't that that amazing? Isn't that amazing? You pray for people's salvation, then when they get saved, you say, no way. No way. I can't. No, 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 no. I don't believe that. We'll wait and see. No, they couldn't believe it because the conversion of the apostle Paul was so drastic and unthinkable that people found it hard to believe. No way could he who was such an ardent and fierce foe of the church now become its faithful defender and friend. 
You do understand that the church never had a more fierce foe than Paul. He thought it was his calling in life to stamp out these heretics, these blasphemers, these ungodly people who call themselves following Jesus. And he was very good at his job. The church never had a fiercer foe. But you do understand. But God. And when the reality of the grace of God was interjected into the life of Paul, he who was the church's fiercest foe suddenly became her most faithful friend. That's amazing. You know what that reminds us, beloved? That reminds us that we don't hate our enemies. We pray for them. That reminds us that we don't despise our enemies. We love them. That reminds us that our goal is not the destruction of our enemies. It is their salvation. And those who we think are most unlikely to be saved, glory to God, if God would ever be pleased to redeem them and turn them from our fiercest fall to a beloved friend in Jesus. You can, beloved, you can. The only explanation for Paul being saved is God. The only explanation for anyone being saved is God. That's it. Man-made gospels, you know what they do? They take the glory away from God. That's what they do. But God's gospel, God's gospel brings him glory. Here's the question. Here's the question. When people heard Paul, they gave God the glory. What do people hear when they hear your story? What do people hear when they hear your testimony? What do they hear when they hear you singing your song? Are they enticed to think more about your sin or are they encouraged to think greatly about God? Are they amazed at how much you sinned or are they amazed at the power of Christ to save you? What do they hear? They must hear the glory of your Redeemer. If your testimony is worth anything, beloved, it is only worth you pointing people to Jesus. Why the song is right when it says, I will glory in my Redeemer. My life he bought, my love he owns. I have no longing for another. I'm satisfied in him alone. 
I will glory in my Redeemer, his faithfulness, my standing place. Though foes are mighty and rush upon me, my feet are firm, held by his there it is. You want to know my testimony? I glory in my redeemer because I stand amazed that I'm saved. Now let's talk about Jesus. Let's talk about God because he really deserves the honor, the glory, and the praise. It's really all about him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning, thank you for the songs that we sing. Thank you for the prayers that we pray. We thank you for your word that comes to us, reminds us of how awesome and wonderful and amazing you are. Saving your people. Father, we thank you for your spirit this morning. We pray that if there's anyone here, Lord, who doesn't know the Christ that we have sung and that we have proclaimed, that right now by your spirit, that their eyes would be open to see him, their hearts would receive him, that you would grant them faith and repentance, and they would call upon the name of Jesus, and they would be saved. Oh, Lord, grant salvation. Glorify yourself this morning. Redeeming your people. Thank you. Thank you for it all. In Jesus' name we pray.